Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Canyon Bikes. Canyon have recently updated their range of e-bikes, so they now all have the awesome EP8 motor from Shimano with a massive 85 newton meters of torque. They've also added a brand new model with the torque on. With the idea of creating something that means you no longer need to worry about chairlifts and shuttles to get your gravity fix. It's a 180mm travel bike with 27.5 inch wheels, a 63.5 degree head angle, long reach and short chainstays to make it playful and lively on the trails. It also passes the same durability test as their downhill bike, so it is tough. If that's not for you, then there's also the Spectral On, which is their 150mm bike that's built to be more of an all-rounder to help you cover insane amounts of ground on your regular trail rides. They also make a 130mm Neuron On and a Hardtail Grand Canyon On, so whatever your e-bike needs, Canyon have got you covered. The bikes are in stock pretty much everywhere, but if you do happen to be in a country that doesn't have stock immediately, then there will be an option for you to sign up for a notification as soon as that country's stock arrives, and that shouldn't be very far off. So head to canyon.com now to check them out. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so as you're the first to know when a new episode drops. If you're listening on Spotify, then give the podcast a follow there. Either way, it's free and it's really easy to do. And I've got buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe to help you out. Or there's probably a subscriber or follow button in whatever app you're using to listen to this episode now so you can get it done right away. If you fancy an email from me every now and then where I'll send you links to interesting bike-related articles and videos, show you some of the products I've been using and enjoying, and send you links to giveaways and competitions too, then you can join my newsletter. No spam, just an occasional dose of mountain biking stuff to get you stoked for riding. You can sign up by heading to the subscribe page of my website and filling out the simple form over there. You'll get an email with a confirmation link and you will need to click that to be able to receive the newsletter. So make sure you check your junk mail after you sign up. For the hardcore downtime fans amongst you, there's some lovely organic t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies available to show your support over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. They're great quality, available worldwide, and they ship without any single-use plastics too. All the proceeds go to helping improve the podcast, so a massive thank you to everyone who's bought something so far. Make sure you give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast too. It's always great to hear from you, so keep the comments coming. All right, this week on the show, I'm joined by a rider that not everyone will have heard of. Stefan Garlicki is a South African World Cup racer with a crazy story and is someone we can all learn a lot from. We chat about what it's like to come from South Africa and learn to race in Europe and on the World Cup circuit, giving a real insight into the dedication required. We also hear about Stefan's horrendous injuries that put him out of action for a couple of years and pushed him to the point where he suffered from PTSD and panic attacks. Stefan has worked super hard on his recovery and as part of that he's even learnt to backflip to dirt. Chatting with Stefan gave me some really great perspective on things and helped me focus on what's important. I hope you enjoy listening to what he has to say. So without further ado, here's Stefan Garlicki. Stefan Garlicki, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's an absolute pleasure. We've had a little bit of uh, bit of trouble getting set up. So you're sat in your car, I believe, kind of somewhere a bit away from your house to get a signal. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had to do a little a little trip up the road. Um, we live on a farm, so it's it's a bit challenging sometimes, especially with internet and that. So had to drive up the road about 6Ks, and now I'm sitting on the side of the road uh, in my car, but it's actually not bad. Works out as a good studio. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's start from from the early days. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, because I think you grew up around uh, professional athletes within your family, but from a much different sport. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my parents are very involved in horses and show jumping, horse racing, uh, breeding, and uh, yeah, I. I, yeah, my whole childhood was, was just horses pretty much. And obviously growing up on a farm, uh, with, uh, with all of that around was, was pretty different, but, uh, I don't know. I think, uh, it was maybe just a bit too much for me and I, I wanted to find my own way and, and sort of follow my own dreams sort of thing. It's just, uh, I think, yeah, a lot of people were quite surprised that I got into bikes as opposed to horses given my background, but <laughs> But I, I don't know. I, I think it was just as a kid when when you've got it so easy, then then it sort of uh, takes away a bit of the motivation to to work at it. Um, whereas something like bikes was different, and um, yeah, uh, that's always it always excited me a bit more, a bit more than than the horses, and um, yeah, ended up going the other direction. Yeah, that's quite headstrong from a young age to want to kind of forge your own path. I guess you must be a pretty strong character <laughs> well i guess i'd like to think so uh but uh yeah i mean it's obviously as a kid you you don't it wasn't my intention as when i was uh very young that i was gonna you know go head you know full on into sport or, or whatever but i uh i did dabble a bit in horses um and actually when i was 19 um, I, I rode for a couple of years, uh, just, I don't know, all of a sudden decided that I wanted to, to give it a try, but, uh, that was sort of, it was a bit of an interim phase because as a, like growing up, I, when I was about eight years old, I started doing motocross and, mm -hmm. and so for 10 years I raced motocross and that was like the, the ultimate goal and dream. Um, but just, uh, due to financial financial issues and it's it's it takes so much to actually make it as a professional in that sport um i uh yeah when i got to end of school um i didn't really know what i wanted to do couldn't really um my parents said that's it now you gotta you gotta sort yourself out um from the, from the motocross side so needless to say i wasn't in a position to do that so went overseas i went to the uk actually for about six months or so, a uh, bit of a gap year after school, uh, just worked, yeah. worked odd jobs. And uh, and then while I was there, I actually got involved, uh, met some guys that were doing four cross and and uh, they they suggested I come along to, to a race because I'd, I'd sort of played around on bikes as a teenager, just doing a bit of dirt jumps here and there, but nothing serious. And uh, when I was over there, they, they said, come and give it a try. And then I really got into the four cross a lot. Um, and when I came back at the end of that year, there was no four cross in South Africa. So the closest thing I could find was downhill to, to the sort of a combo between motocross and four cross. And, yeah. uh, and yeah, then I decided, sold the motocross bike and got a downhill bike and thought I'd give it a try. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, very quickly I realized that, uh, that was the direction I wanted to go in. You must have had quite a, a natural talent, I guess, for the gravity side of things, because you did quite well in the UK four cross scene, didn't you? In that in that year you were here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think given given the time frame, I'd, I'd only done it for about six months, but uh, I think I finished sixth overall. And I was in, I was a junior at that point, um, so I think I finished sixth in the in the UK four cross rankings. 
um, uh-huh. which which I was pretty happy about considering um, how I knew I was to it all. And I was, I mean, <laughs> first race I rocked up and I had a like a cross country, just a cross country helmet on, flat pedals, jeans, and a and a t-shirt, and that was like, um, <laughs> and I was riding a full on dirt jump bike, single speed. Uh, so it was a it was an interesting experience for sure. And at the same time, when I was in the UK, I was also for for work. I was working as a rickshaw rider in London. Okay. Um. So that was like my training <laughs> was yeah. was was just uh, just doing daily daily commutes and uh, and then yeah, riding as much as I could on the side. Yeah, you're in good company there. I think Bernard Kerr spent a bit of time as a rickshaw rider, so it's uh, it's obviously good training. Yeah, actually, so I uh, I met him uh, at that point because I don't know if I met him at a four cross race or because he was quite into four cross at that point, um, or if it was actually. But I, I remember that he was doing um, sort of part time rickshaw stuff at the same time, and um, it was a cool experience. I, I must say, I wouldn't want to do it again. <laughs> it was pretty tough, <laughs> but at the time, it was uh, yeah, it was. Uh, fun time for sure yeah so was it a natural thing then once you got back and you got yourself a downhill bike it it was a natural thing for you to go and race it it feels like you're you have a competitive streak in you for sure yeah definitely uh i'm i'm very competitive and and like to push myself and i guess coming from uh, from racing motocross for so long it's i didn't really know much else um and uh yeah as soon as i got got the downhill bike i I started racing uh, like almost immediately i think the next week uh we had a local race and um at the same time i got a bmx and i started dabbling in a bit of bmx racing um because that was sort of more similar to the four cross side um and then for that 20 so that was 2010 um and for that year in 2010 i just i did both i did a bit of bmx and i did um i did downhill and and then about i don't know maybe six months in middle of the year um, I went to national champs, um, for downhill and, and ended up getting fifth. Um, and, and that was like kind of the, the, the turning point, I guess. Uh, cause I, you know, I, I'd actually, at that point I'd been enjoying the racing BMX maybe more, uh, although I wasn't doing as well. Um, but yeah, when I, when I had that result, that sort of changed. And then I, I shifted a lot more of my focus to, uh, to the downhill side and then pretty much gave up on the bmx um and just yeah. around downhill <laughs> yeah fair play so yeah fifth is a you know national champs has got to be a, a good enough thing to, to make you start thinking about the opportunities to go pro as a downhill racer and to to really push that side of things but it's quite a tough um area to follow i guess coming from south africa there's not many people in the past that have have really made a huge success on a downhill circuit, obviously other than Greg, Andrew Neithling are probably the two names that really stand out in the downhill side. How did you go about it? Cause you kind of threw yourself in pretty deep quite quickly, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so it all happened. Yeah. It all happened pretty, pretty quickly. I, so I got first at national champs and that's when I really sort of made a, this sort of, I realized that I could, have an opportunity here to to make something of this the, the, the fact that i was able to to get to that point quite quickly um and so I basically sat my parents down and said uh look i really want to give this a try and i was actually going to be studying the next year i'd applied to study architecture and and was already kind of all set and basically it got down to about december 
and uh, that's when I made the call that that I was going to go to Europe and, and give it a try. And their theory was they said, right, okay, we'll give you one year. And they they helped help fund me for that year. And they said, that's, that's sort of, we would have had to put in the money for studying anyway. And they said, you've got one year. And after that year, you've either either got to fund it yourself or get sponsors or however, but um, or come back and, and pay for your studies yourself. Uh, I don't think they really thought that it was going to be a long-term thing. <laughs> but... But yeah, uh, and so at the end of that year, I contacted um, uh, Johan Portgieter, uh, who was the current national champ at the time. And I'd obviously known him from the races, but we weren't, I wouldn't say we were good friends at that point. And uh, I knew that he had been overseas a few times. Um, so he had a bit of experience and I knew that he wanted to um, be racing in Europe if he could, but he didn't have the means to do so. And because my, my folks had offered to get us a, buy us a cheap van, um, uh, so that we could sleep in, uh, sort of it was a, officially a camper, but wasn't really a camper. It was, it was a, just <laughs> it's like a Volkswagen T5 or something, um, equivalent size. Um, it was actually a 1994 Peugeot Talbot. Um, nice. I read some, some very, from very interesting stories from that van. <laughs> like the first trip, our exhaust falling off on the highway and um, getting a fire, a fire starting in the glove box uh, because we, we we kept blowing fuses and then we we just shoved tin foil in the glove box to make everything work. <laughs> and then and then it got so hot that the t- that the, the plastic caught the light and it was burning <laughs> on the highway. Um, and then we drove under or i drove under a, a bridge that was a bit too low and we broke both of the roof vents off the roof and then we set <laughs> two gaping holes in the roof which we then proceeded to duct tape closed and drove like that for about three months <laughs> nice oh uh, yeah i mean it was a, it was really an adventure um but yeah so he i, I needed someone because i didn't know anything about you know where to go sort of how to go about things so I knew I could learn a lot from him and uh, yeah, and after a bit of convincing because he had a, he had a permanent job here and he was working for SRAM actually. And um, after a bit of convincing, he decided that he was going to give it a go. So we we packed all our stuff and headed off for about six months uh, living in a van together. And yeah, it was pretty interesting when you getting to know someone on such a personal, personal level, (laughs) living in a van for that long together. Yeah, you're definitely going to get to know them pretty quickly in that small space. Yeah, yeah, and no, it was it was it was good. I mean, even though we were in such a confined space, we didn't we didn't have too many setbacks. The the odd little thing here and there, but for the most part, we got on really well. And and now we we really good friends um, still to this day. So um, yeah, it was a it was a cool start. But uh, yeah, then I, I really appreciate driving driving a, a car that works now and, and staying in accommodation and <laughs> not have to go through all of that again. <laughs> I bet, I bet. So what, yeah, what's so different about racing in Europe? What kind of makes it hard to to transfer from being a good rider in South Africa to being a good rider in Europe and therefore at a kind of World Cup level? Well, tough question uh, to answer, but I mean, basically when I, when I went over there, I think just before we left, we had the, the following year's national champs was 2011 and I think I got third and Andrew Nathan won and um, Johan was second and uh, I kind of thought well you know if we can do 
And I think I was only a couple of seconds off Andrew. And I thought, well, you know, Andrew, like top 10 World Cup rider, like, you know, we can, can go over there and expect it to just be be right up there. And little did I know, it was just a completely different ball game. Um, I think a couple of factors. For one, the tracks are, are completely different. Um, our tracks are almost like more more enduro style, like a lot tighter, not as fast, obviously not as long, um, and and conditions as well. Um, you know, our tracks are maybe two minutes, uh, and it's always dry, virtually always dry. I mean, literally, I can't remember the last time I rode with any with in a raindrop in South Africa in the off season. Um, <laughs> whereas, yeah, you go to Europe and suddenly it's just mud everywhere. I had no idea how to how to even contemplate riding mud. I mean, I was just like crashing. It was just ridiculous. I crashed like five times a run, <laughs> trying to trying to make it down, and and also setting up the bike uh, and training. Like I had no clue. I mean, I was nowhere nowhere near ready uh, when I tried to race a World Cup. I mean, like I went. I think my first World Cup was was Fort William, and I mean, geez, after like two minutes, it felt like I was completely done, and I was not even halfway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so yeah that was a, a huge eye opener um and yeah i think the it took me a good few years to to really figure out um how to go about things there and and I, we didn't because we we obviously weren't on teams and and didn't have i didn't know anyone really that was uh that was doing really well and that was kind of really involved um and so it was i didn't really have that information um so we kind of just had to do trial and error and both of us were just learning as we went and trying different things and uh yeah so it, it took quite a while to like figure that out but uh yeah it's it's not something that you can uh, you just go over from here and expect to get good results um you have to go there and learn it and and it, and it takes time for sure yeah yeah i think it was 2013 half year was your first qualified for a world cup right yeah yeah so i'd qualified i think in peter maritzburg in 2012 the year before but i uh-huh. wouldn't but being obviously a, a local sort of a local world cup i don't really classify that one as a um, as as good as as qualifying in half because uh-huh. you know i knew the track really well and and being at home it's always a little easier i feel um, yeah that's fair comment uh, but yeah, Sheffield was was cool. I just snuck in there, but uh, it was cool to finally uh, to finally sort of feel like you you're making some steps. Can you put your finger on any of the things that you had to kind of learn or put in place to be able to qualify a World Cup? Is it just kind of time and practice, or are there certain things that you think you then understood that enabled you to to get that that well, kind of position? The biggest thing that I struggled with was uh, actually getting up to speed in that set amount of time, um, mm-hmm. because you have such limited practice. I'd never, and even I'd never experienced having to get up to race speed, and you know you've got whatever it is, three and a half hours or something, um, the first day, and then you've got an hour the next day, and and then it's qualifying time, and um, to go from learning a track from scratch uh, to being at race speed is i found that really challenging um because i mean realistically you only get five or six runs um you know uh to to actually get up to speed and if you don't it's easier if you know the track but if you don't know the track then 
the first few runs you just you're just trying to learn the track and and obviously at that point now i've i can learn tracks a bit faster i feel but then um i i think i spent way too much time just just doing sections of the track and not actually putting the whole track together so uh-huh. i'd spend the entire practice just uh, like stopping doing sections uh and and getting things done like that but then the problem is when i do a full run um i wouldn't be sort of flowing and connecting everything and also i didn't know how fatigued i was going to be because i hadn't done full runs in practice um okay. and i think that was a a big thing that i realized that i've got to do uh, at least for me um i have to do full runs uh before at least a few of them before qualifying just to to like put everything together and also it sort of puts your mind at ease that you know how you're going to feel when you get to the bottom after doing a full run for example at, at fort william or valdesol or something like that um and yeah that that took took a while and and i think it's it is it's a big confidence thing um you, you know when you first at least for me when you when i first got there it was like pretty crazy to see you know you're seeing all these guys that you've seen on tv and and uh, greg and gwen and and g and everyone and and you like you feel so out of your depth you like you you like can't believe that you in the same uh, you know that you're right there doing the same same event they are uh, so i think changing that perception which which you know just took a bit of time um also also goes a long way to um yeah that next step yeah and how are you funding it at this point because like you said i think was it 2011 your parents offered kindly to support that first season but from then onwards you were sorting yourself out how did you go about that so the yeah and after that season the 2012 i managed to get onto a little a small team in um based in austria um and it was called uh, the canfield factory team um and then that was a bit of a balls up because i got injured that year uh, broke my wrists right at the start of the season and then it was a bit of a write-off um and then the following year 2013 um i didn't actually know what i was going to do i was trying for months and months and months to get um, i was sending out sponsorship applications to um to all sorts of brands and i was actually looking in the corporate world because i knew that getting onto a team at that point was was not going to be really an option because um you know i hadn't i hadn't got the results that i would have needed um and i knew that the, the industry was so saturated so uh yeah i started approaching corporate brands and actually got in touch with a brand called investec which is a, a big bank in south africa and um i think uh it was sort of right time right place and um yeah they gave me an opportunity and for for five years they were my my main sponsor and main backer and uh pretty much if i didn't get them then i don't even know if i would have been able to continue um so that was kind of yeah the way i went about it and then ever from then it's it's sort of as a result got better and and i got more contacts and then i picked up other sponsors along the way so i've pretty much been doing it um as a privateer all the time and just uh getting my own sponsors and um doing my own deal uh there was a couple of years i was on a team uh on a ucr team with solid bikes um Mm -hmm. but again it wasn't like a, a proper team in my you know where like like you know one of these big teams it was more it was officially a team but it was more to help with entries and and pit space and that and we mostly did our own thing anyway 
Okay. Did um, you get extra support being on that factory team though? Was there like, I don't know, a bit more to help you through a race weekend or did you feel like it was very similar really just were a bit more secure financially and with bikes and kit? Uh, we had a mechanic the the first year or maybe the first and second year, I'm trying to think, because um, it was 2015 and 16. Uh, but the problem is that we had a mechanic, but there were, I think, five or six riders and there was one mechanic. So uh, it, it was, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much just the essentials that that he could help with and uh, and the rest of it we pretty much had to do ourselves. So, I mean, it was cool. It was with Harry Malloy and, and Joe Breeden and Joe Connell and we had a, a pretty good uh, group and morgan shaw was on the team the one year um and uh yeah it was cool um cool experience but it it didn't it didn't really it wasn't like a proper team setup uh so never really experienced uh what it would be like to be on you know uh, the real a real factory team but you know at the same time doing your own deal is quite i, I enjoyed that uh because you know you don't have you don't have anyone telling what to do and you can make your own schedule and there's not much pressure because uh, you can, you know, all the pressure just comes from yourself and um, and you can choose what you want to ride and what what brands you want to work with for the most part. Um, so Yeah, yeah, good. It's a good position to be in, I guess. But those those 2015, 2016 seasons, they, they seem to go pretty well for you. You were qualifying much more regularly at World Cups and am I right in thinking you won South African national champs in both those years yeah so so uh yeah 20 20 up until 2015 every year i'd had an injury um so like not necessarily something huge but uh in 2011 i dislocated my shoulder and 2012 i broke my wrist 2013 dislocated my shoulder again uh 2014 uh the big concussion and broken finger and that and, and not, not that it was a big deal but it's obviously all those things do knock your confidence a bit and finally, 2015, I had a year where I was completely injury-free and um, things started coming together. Um, and yeah, 2015-16 won national champs uh, at home. And uh, yeah, I started qualifying uh, more regularly at, uh, at World Cups and started to really feel like I was, I kind of started putting the pieces of the puzzle together um, on the international side and really started to build the confidence. And um, I is actually i almost sort of almost quit at the end of 2014 because i was so disappointed and i had another year where i was just like just missing where i wanted to be and uh then in 2015 i started working with a mental coach at the beginning of that that season and that sort of changed yeah it changed everything um and really sort of set the tone for yeah for what was to follow interesting what what kind of stuff did they help you unlock then i think um I mean, it was a lot of overanalyzing stuff and, and trying to, I was worried about things which I actually had no control over. And um, because basically for a couple of years before that, I'd been so close. I was the most consistent rider in the country, but I hadn't managed to win um, like a national or national champs. I kept coming second. I literally came second to everyone. Um, every time it was a race, I would be second at just about every single, na- I think there was a, 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 a a period where it was like eight events in a row, like between national champs and nationals that we had here. And I was second at every single one and every single time to a different rider. And it was driving me insane because I just, I just wanted to win and I just couldn't figure out how to, how to get it done. And, uh, yeah, so 
they just helped me to kind of be gave me strategies and that to to relax before the start and kind of not think about things because I'd always be sort of analyzing the track and, and doing all that in my head but actually what I needed to do is calm down and um, so I started listening to music before I, before I started and uh, just try to actually not think about the race at all because by that stage I'd realized that I'd kind of done everything that I could to prepare and, and be as good as I could on the track and the bike was ready and actually thinking about it more at that point was just was just hyping me up too much and not actually serving a good purpose so I found that when I zoned out and started just thinking about other things then it just it would just happen like when you got in the gate your body knew what to do Interesting. Um, do you use a certain type or certain style of music to help like I'm guessing some pretty hardcore tunes are not really going to help you relax yeah so I actually listen to generally quite uh quite sort of passive music before i start like uh i don't know it, it wouldn't be what you'd expect like more i don't know like ballads and things like that just to try and uh-huh. re- to try and like relax me because i some guys listen to sort of rock and stuff to try and hype them up but that's that's the exact opposite of what i want before the start <laughs> yeah fair play that's interesting yeah i guess what uh, you know what works doesn't work for everyone yeah everyone's individual in what they need yeah yeah um, and, and I find like, as soon as you, as soon as you get it done once and you, and you sort of figure out what works for you, then it's just like a knock on effect and you get the ball rolling and then you, you realize, oh, cool. I can, I can do this again, you know? Uh, and it, and then the confidence starts to build from there. Yeah. And that's when it really starts to compound and the results come. Yeah. So I think, yeah, after those couple of years with two South African national champs behind you, more world cup qualifiers going into 2017, I think it's fair to say one of your best seasons, if not your best season, and definitely your best World Cup result, which came in Val de Sol, I think, 21st place. That's not an easy track. What what went on? Why do you think that your best ever World Cup result to date is from a track that's so gnarly? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I can say this. When the first time I went to Val de Sol, which was, I think, in 2011, I was absolutely terrified. Like I was terrified. Like I didn't know, I, I didn't know how the hell you're supposed to ride a track like that. Like it was just, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, going into 2017. So the previous year in 2016, I'd also won an IXS cup uh, in Germany, which is the first time I'd won an event in Europe as well. And um, I think just everything was kind of, going in the right direction and then for 2017 I, I was looking to try something different to try and give me a little a little change and so I managed to get a mechanic um New Zealander Connor Harvey uh who um who was a yeah that was a game changer having having someone to help at the races um because I didn't realize before how much time and energy was spent just just getting things ready and, and where you could be spending it doing a track walk or, you know, watching GoPro runs and really getting dialed in. But you, instead you were working on the bike and, and going grocery shopping and like just doing things which actually weren't, weren't helping um, get ready for the race the next day. Um, mm-hmm. And that made things a lot. And I really trusted him and, and that really helped a lot. Uh, and then the other thing was I, I knew that on a race weekend um, it was always, a challenge for me to get up to speed quick enough so 
Um, and, and I struggled with arm pump the last the, the years before that. So I thought the only thing I could think of to try and get rid of the arm pump was to go and do some training at the actual venues. So, okay. so at the beginning of the year, I went to so actually the first round of Lords, um, which obviously I couldn't train for because it was uh, so early on. But um, that yeah, I think I was fifty seventh or something there, which was which was fine, like to start out with. Um, and then after that, I went to Fort William, and I spent about three weeks in Fort William before the event, um, literally just doing runs. Um, and so I, I think I was riding about three times a week because I realized that you can't ride every day in Fort William because you, yeah, your body can't handle it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, after after in the beginning, I mean, I couldn't do a, uh, I couldn't do a, I couldn't do a full run without without getting arm pump. And by the end of the by the about the second week or so. I could literally go as hard as I could from the top to the bottom and, um, and still felt pretty strong at the bottom. And that was, that was a huge confidence thing as well, because I went into the race, uh, knowing that, um, I could start out from the top, from the get go as hard as I could. And I didn't have to like, you know, reserve energy, um, as opposed to previous years where I knew that there was, it was just a matter of time till I got arm pumped. Um, and I think just having that extra confidence and also doing, I did a lot of time runs on the track and, and compared it to the previous years to, to guys that had been, uh, you know, on the podium or top 10. So I, I knew I had an, a good idea of where I was, um, speed wise. And then I just knew I had to execute it when it came down to it and, um, ended up getting 35th for that race. But for me, that was a huge breakthrough because I'd never qualified in Fort William before, um, and then went from not qualifying to getting 35th. So it was a, a nice. huge, a huge step. And then, uh, from then, I think that just set the tone, um, for the rest of the, for the rest of the year and went to, um, I qualified at all of them apart from Fort, apart from Andorra and then Dora had a big practice crash and ended up getting, going to hospital and got stitches in my arm and, um, tried to ride qualifying, but I was in a lot of pain. Um, so that, that didn't go, uh, as well, but the rest of them all kind of came together and then, getting to back to, to Val de Sol, I did something similar. I, I knew that that was the track I struggled with the most um, in the in the years prior, even though I actually quite liked that type of riding. Um, I found just physically I, I really battled to, you know, to, from about halfway, I just couldn't hold on. So went there two or three weeks beforehand, um, uh, just for, I think we rode about three, four days, and that was all I needed. Um, just Just to, I did a lot of, just full runs. Um, and then going into the race, I knew that I could, I could literally go as hard as I could from the top to the bottom and I didn't get any, any arm pump. And, um, yeah, suddenly things just came together. <laughs> yeah. That must've felt awesome. That's a hell of a result on a track like that. Yeah. I, especially it was, I mean, 21st for some people doesn't sound that great, but from the place coming from where I was, uh, to you know being terrified of just riding the track um a few years prior to to getting that result was a huge mental breakthrough for me um just being able to like conquer something that i found so intimidating and sort of that really felt like i'd kind of unlocked the the puzzle uh you know to to know how to actually get it done and then it also showed me that yeah these guys are they're just human um and for sure they're amazing riders but just because they, you know they're not superman you know, like it, there, there are ways to you know to to get it done you know 
a huge confidence builder, but um, coming out at the end of that 2017 season after yeah your your best season to date, I think you lost quite a lot of your sponsorship deals, didn't you? What what happened there, and how did you how did you deal with that to get back and ready to race for 2018? So yeah, I mean that basically that when I got the result, Val de Sol was like the <laughs> I felt like I was everything was perfect. Like I had at that point, like. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making enough to survive and to to race. And I just had my best result and felt like I was riding better than ever. And then, yeah, I got home and I found out that, yeah, my main sponsor, which was Investec at the time, um, were their, their head of marketing has changed. And um, the new guy was uh, obviously he didn't know me and wanted to make a change, as often happens in these things. Um, so I found out about that. And then I was actually at a car sponsor. I was with BMW at the time and they also pulled out as well. Uh, just not my fault, but just they'd, they'd done a deal, I think, with Specialized um, globally uh, where they were having this partnership. And because I was I was riding for solid bikes at the moment at that time. And uh, so that didn't obviously I needed either. I would have had to be in a Specialized, which wasn't really an option at that point or um, or it wasn't going to work. So. I lost both of those. Suddenly, I had no car and no um, no source of uh, or no major source of financial income. Um, and going into 2018, obviously, it was I. It was probably the, one of the most stressful uh, periods um, of my life at that point, just because I I honestly didn't know if I'd be able to continue racing the next year. Um, and given that I just had my best year, uh, it was just I felt it sort of felt like I was an employee of a company and just have your best year ever. And then instead of getting a raise, you, you know, your salary gets, you know, just about all taken away. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really hard to deal with sort of contemplating whether this is it and whether I could even keep going. And, and I also that year, because I finally had a mechanic and, and invested a bit of money and gone to the places beforehand and done training and, and sort of realized what it took at least for me to to get up to that level. Now going into the next year, I knew that even if I got support, if it wasn't as much, then I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that. So it sort of felt like it was a bit of a catch twenty two because I I knew that I'd be uh, taking a step back. Um, but yeah, I managed to get uh, I managed to get some sponsors together, but it was pretty much about half of what I had the year before. Um, so. I had to. I went back to Europe in 2018, knowing that it would be a reduced season. I couldn't go to Montsenan. Like I would have to skip quite a few races just to be able to afford it. Um, so it wasn't the best. Yeah, it wasn't the best circumstances. I wasn't going in the best mindset. Even though on the bike at that point, I felt like I was riding even better than I had in 2017. Uh, so confidence-wise, but but because of all the stress outside. Um, I wasn't really enjoying it that much. It, it just felt like a job because I was so worried about the finances and, and the logistics of actually making it happen that the riding almost be, sort of took a bit of a back step, um, which wasn't the most fun. Yeah, and I guess you knew as well that you kind of needed the results, right, in order to rebuild the sponsorship side of things. So I guess there's a pressure there. And the season kind of started out with a fair amount of bad luck, I think, with the... Uh, three flat tires in the first four races, um, which is bad enough. But then you were at an IXS Cup in Germany and you had a, a pretty horrible crash, yeah? Yeah, so 
so as I said, I, I wasn't in the best mindset going into the year, and even though I felt like I was riding good, and then yeah, I went to. I'd never had a flat tire in a qualifying run before, ever, before 2018. And then literally three out of the first four World Cups qualifying, uh, I had flat tires. <laughs> and, and, and all for like weird circumstances. Uh, one, I broke a wheel. One, I cut a tire. One, I snapped a valve off um, halfway down. So that was uh, that obviously just compacted everything because I, I felt like I was riding well, but just couldn't somehow, I don't know, everything was working against me. And uh, then, yeah, halfway through the year, I went to um, Ilmenau in Germany uh, to do an IXS Cup there, thinking that it would be a good place to just go and have a bit of fun, take a bit of pressure off. Uh, I'd actually won there the year before. Um, and, um, yeah, last I was last rider down. I was, um, I think I was uh, the top seed. So, yeah, last rider down in, on the Saturday. And, uh, yeah, I just went through Rock Garden, got a bit, offline i think i went a touch faster than i had in practice and just clipped the rock which sent my bike um into like a high side position and it bounced a couple times and i went off the track and hit a tree at about i don't know 30 k's an hour or something um got a video got a video of it of my on my instagram channel (laughs) um and yeah i i'd never had obviously something that serious happen and I hit the tree on my side, on my right side, and um, I knew immediately that that something bad had happened. Um, uh, my leg was it actually wasn't that painful. It was like a weird feeling, like I knew, it's sort of almost like a sick feeling. Um, I knew something bad had happened, and I, I I wasn't quite sure if I'd done the ligaments in my hip or or if my hip was dislocated, or if my femur was broken, um, but there was definitely something seriously wrong. And uh, I, the doctors came and asked me if they should, if they should, uh, if I want painkillers. And at first, I wasn't quite sure what I should tell them because I didn't want to tell them that they should put me on stuff. And then I realized that it's actually nothing serious. But I'm very glad that I did in the end insist that they give me something because uh, yeah, I'd ended up being a lot worse than initially uh, thought. <laughs> Yeah, what was it you'd done to yourself in that crash? Was it a broken femur? Uh, so technically, yeah. Um, so basically, it's it's called a femoral neck fracture. So mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of the time what older people do. Um, it's basically where your femur turns and makes a kink and goes into your hip joint. That neck part between the ball and that corner of your femur, that part um, literally, because I hit the tree so hard, it just squashed onto itself. So it just it's like a... Uh, just compounded onto itself and um, shattered. Um, and so that's why it was. So the feet, the that's why because I was feeling my femur when I was on the floor and and uh, it felt straight, but obviously I couldn't feel in the joint. And I just mm-hmm. had this weird feeling when I was looking down at my foot that it felt to me like I was holding my leg straight, but my foot was off to the one side, uh, which was kind of a bit weird, <laughs> making yeah. me think that there's something going on. But uh, it, yeah, then it was a bit of a. I didn't, so they, they put me on ketamine when I was at the track, which is pretty hectic stuff. You you don't know what's going on. You literally, you're still awake, but you're completely out of it and uh, went, got to the hospital. No one could speak English because I was in this little town in Germany. Um, and uh, eventually the doctors came in and in broken English just said like, it's very bad and we need to operate now. Uh, and uh, then I, and they, then they were talking about doing a hip replacement. And I was like, whoa, 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 what, what is going on? 
Um, and basically because of what makes that break so complicated is that it's, um, it's got very poor blood supply uh, in, that, in that area. So what often can happen is that it doesn't, it doesn't heal properly or it does heal and then the, the head of the femur actually dies um, because of lack, of lack of blood supply. So uh-huh. that's why they said if, if I think I, I was 27 at that time, and they said if I was over 30, then they definitely would have done a hip replacement. Um, but they said they've got to try try to keep mine and uh anyway they put put pins in and and uh then it was a long because of that because it was such a unique uh sort of break um i wasn't allowed to put any uh weight um at all on the hip for almost five months afterwards um so you know when you when you're on crutches for like five months before you could even step on your leg uh it's uh it was a quite a quite an adjustment because having the longest injury i'd ever had before that was about six weeks so uh to go from that to um to not knowing first of all if i'd be able to ride again um and then also knowing that it's going to be probably close on a year till i could get back on a bike even if all went well um was uh yeah pretty tough uh to deal with at the time i bet yeah how how long was it before you managed to get back onto a bike of some form uh so I started walking at yeah I was about four and a half months started walking and I got on a on a road bike or cross country bike um, at about six months. Um, okay, that must and, have felt really good. Yeah, no, it did. Um, it it felt really good, but at the same time I knew that because of this injury there was a risk period of about two years where the head of the femur could still die. So even though the bone right. heals, it could like there was no guarantee that I still wouldn't need a hip replacement, which would mean going and doing the whole thing all over again. So this was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, but I just, I needed to try and yeah, focus forward and, and not think about that and just be positive and hope that it, that it worked. Um, and yeah, so I started riding at six months and then about, I think it was about eight and a half months. I got, I got on a downhill bike for the first time, um, which, which was also, uh yeah really good feeling I'd, I'd changed bikes in the meantime changed from a 650 to 29 i got on the commensal at that stage and i kind of made a big uh, a lot of changes to to everything just to kind of give everything a bit of a fresh start um going going forward to to have a bit more a bit of extra motivation and uh uh yeah it was a big learning experience <laughs> yeah what was it like getting back on was there a, a fear there was it hard to get back up to speed Actually, it sounds funny, but uh, after the first, after that first injury, I almost felt more confident than before uh, in a weird way because my biggest fear had always been to break my femur, uh, like in my career, because I knew besides obviously death or, or having anything spinal, just I knew that that was the, one of the most painful and, and uh, horrible things that you could do and it was always a, a you know, huge fear of mine so once I'd actually been through that it sort of was like I'd conquered a fear <laughs> and okay. I was like and I was like okay well you know it sucked but I got through it and you know uh, I sort of proved to myself that I could get through something that bad um, and so yeah actually very quickly I felt pretty good uh, on the bike and maybe 
I don't know if that was necessarily a good thing because I maybe started pushing a bit a bit too soon, um, and yeah, which could have could have led to yeah things going a bit pear shaped after that. But um, yeah, I think maybe I, I just I was so focused. I just wanted to get back to racing, and my goal is to be back racing the next year at uh, Fort William. And uh, it was only three months after I got back on the bike um, after being off for uh, for nine months. So wasn't yeah maybe a rush a little bit but yeah i mean you've got to live and learn i guess yeah and you got back i think your first race back was was it national champs and you got third yeah so right before i went over to europe we had national champs and um ended up getting third which i was yeah i was really happy about uh considering considering everything i was only a couple of seconds off and uh and that sort of yeah was a good confidence boost going going back overseas again um i knew i mean i had some limitations also with a hip like i didn't and still don't have full range of motion so certain things i can't i can't do uh like if i have a big impact i can't lift my knee up um to my chest uh i can only lift it about halfway and then it, it sort of bo- it just stops it hits bone on bone so i've I had to make some adjustments in the way that i rode um to get used to that and um and obviously I was at that point I still had my left leg was good so I had a I kind of had to rely on that a bit more to take some of the impacts than that um but considering all I was actually feeling pretty good um considering the time frame yeah yeah, yeah. but it, like you say it wasn't that long before you were kind of struck with the bad luck again <laughs> tell us a bit about about what happened so yeah I went to Fort I went to yeah I went to Fort William. I was there for a few weeks, and then after that went to Leogang uh, for the next World Cup. And uh, yeah, I was in, I was first day of practice. I think I was five runs in, and um, came right at this quite near the top. I it was just a small little flat part, um, kind of before that top rock garden or kind of rock garden that they have in Leogang. Uh, and there's a couple of jumps along there, and and I was literally um, pedaling along the flat. And my foot just unclipped out of the pedal. And I have no idea to this day why. I don't know if I hit something or if my foot wasn't clipped in properly or what it was. But literally about five meters before takeoff, uh, my foot just came out. And obviously, I was going, because I was going quite fast, I was planning to squash the jump. And then because my foot came out, my other my other foot dropped. And instead of squashing the jump, it sort of preloaded the bike and literally just sent me into a, into a cartwheel. Um, and I went yeah, pretty high and came down on my, um, on my other hip and ended up dislocating and breaking the other hip, which was just like actually unbelievable. Like the, the odds of that happening are, I, I don't even know how, how unlikely that is. The fact, I mean, I was lying there on the floor and I just, I knew at that point, I knew that it was dislocated. I could feel it and I just couldn't believe that the same thing or not exactly the same injury but but essentially the same injury had happened again so soon afterwards uh, it just was yeah quite crazy that something like that could happen oh man so was it a femoral neck thing again or was it a bit different no so the so the first one was just it it broke the femur essentially um the second one the hip actually dislocated um and then Mm -hmm. the, the capsule uh the side of the capsule broke off um so it was a both hip injuries slightly in both broken hips but slightly different um slightly different types of injuries um in terms of the 
structural damage, the first one was actually worse. Uh, but in terms of the the pain and, and recovery and stuff, the second one was a lot worse. Um, and mentally, the second injury was uh, was a lot harder to deal with than the first one because after the first one, I sort of thought, well, okay, oh, this is really bad. Like, But, you know, now it's done. I've had my big injury. Like, it's not going to happen again. And then the fact that it happened again so soon afterwards was just, you know, I kind of shook my world because I realized that this can happen at any moment. Um even when you least expect it. And even on a, tra- I mean, I was riding a piece of track that was not dangerous at all. Um, I mean, anyone, anyone who rides a bike could cruise down the section that, that I was riding. So that, yeah, that was really, um, really a hard one. And I, at that point, honestly, I told everyone around me when I was in the hospital, I was like, I'm done, I'm not riding again. Like, and I was like hundred percent convinced for like three months afterwards, I was like, I am not riding um, or definitely not racing ever again. Um, but it's amazing after time, your your mind and body, I don't know, somehow <laughs> it starts to start to forget. <laughs> yeah. you, you had quite a lot of issues kind of after the surgery with this injury, yeah, with, with, was it nerve pain? Yeah, so that was why the second injury, the second one was, was worse because, at least pain-wise, um, because often when the hip dislocates, it's right next to your sciatic nerve, um, the main nerve running down your leg. And so that squashed the nerve. Um, so basically my, when the hip came out, when I was on the track, I had no feeling from the hip down to my foot, um, at all. And, um, but I, I assumed that when they put the hip back in, that would come back and it did to a point. But because it it took, a, I don't know, about an hour and a half until they got the hip back in um, at the hospital. And due to it being compressed for that long, it created nerve damage in in that sciatic nerve. And so my whole leg had, um, you know, I had weird things going on. And um, after I'd left, obviously I was in the hospital, I was on pretty strong painkillers. But when I came out of hospital, um, I was there for about two weeks, came out, and then I started having this most intense pain in my foot, actually, um, on the one side of my foot, even though the injury was at my hip, uh, because your nerve obviously controls everything. It's The pain I was feeling was in my foot, um, and it felt like my foot was literally on fire, uh, like it was the most horrible pain that I've had to deal with. and. Every night for about, I don't know, about six weeks, I'd have to get up about five, six times a night and get into an ice-cold shower to, oh, to, try and numb, to try and numb the leg because it was – and I had a bucket of ice water next to the bed and every, every hour I'd wake up and, and put my foot in the bucket and numb it and then try and fall back asleep before, uh, before the pain kicked in again. Um, and when I, when I'd gone to the doctors in Germany, they, you know, they were pretty reluctant on giving me anything. They just said, you know, take some, take some ibuprofen or whatever. And, uh, I was like, that stuff does absolutely nothing for, for nerves. Um, and yeah, it was about six weeks that I was in, in Germany. Um, my girlfriend was there at the time, so I was staying with her and yeah, I didn't really know what to do. Came home. Um, and when I got back here, I went to see neurologists and, uh, they, yeah, you know, they suggested they wanted to put me on, um, nerve medication, uh, which is, yeah, it's very controversial, I guess it, it does work, but it's, it's very addictive and, um, it's definitely not good long-term. 
But at that point, right. I, I was so desperate. Uh, I just, I was, I said to them, like I said, I, I can't, I literally can't go on uh, like with this. I said, I'll, I'd want to, I'd want to <laughs> bang myself over the head <laughs> because it was so bad. Um, and yeah, I got onto that when I got back and that sorted out the, that sorted out the pain, but yeah, then it, it did lead into yeah some other issues too. Yeah, I was going to say, do you do you have kind of withdrawal challenges with something like that? Like, how do you get off that kind of medication once the nerve issues have resolved? So yeah, it, it's a it's a process. I think I was on it for about three or four months, um, and then uh, obviously as soon as I was able to, I, I would test it. So I'd like come off it a bit and see how the pain was, and if it was still bad, I'd go back on. And eventually, after about three or four months, it was manageable uh, to come off. Um, but you can't just stop because your body becomes so dependent. I mean, it's it's affecting your brain because uh, it's basically blocking the signals, the nerve signals going to your brain. So uh, a little bit like um, yeah, antidepressants um, block certain uh-huh. chemicals. Um, and uh, and then I slowly, I think I weaned myself off it about six weeks and which was, I thought was long enough, but I don't think it was quite long enough. Um, so I wasn't just, I was on, I think, three different types of medication. Um, one other thing I was on was Tramacet, which is pretty hectic stuff um, and really, yeah, really knocks you out. I mean, one of those and you want to go to sleep. Um, and I was on like, I don't know, uh, quite a, <laughs> like four to six a day. Um, and just to like be able to function. Um and uh, and I hated the fact because I, I'm always I've never been uh, into I've never done any drugs or anything like that. I'm always super against that stuff. I eat healthy, so I hated the fact that I'd kind of become so dependent um, on on this to get through. But uh, yeah, at that point I didn't really know what else to do but besides listen to the doctors. And um, and then about I don't know I think it was about October. The injury happened in June, and I think it was about October that I was off everything, um, and then I suddenly couldn't sleep. Um, like, it was the most bizarre thing. Literally could not sleep a wink. Like, for about two months, I was Jeez. awake. I, I would sleep, like, one hour a night. Um, I mean, like, and I was so exhausted all day long, but I literally, it's like my body just wouldn't allow me to go to sleep. Um and because of that, I started to like, yeah, become, have like weird mood swings and like, because obviously your body's not ever getting recharged. So you, things start to, things start to go haywire. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. And after a while, uh, I spoke to, I spoke to my family doctor and she, she diagnosed me with PTSD. Um, right. Okay. Uh, basically from all the trauma that I'd, you know, been through back to back. Um, and when I was in, uh, in December, I went back to Germany. Um, and literally I was, I was in a movie theater watching, uh, Ford versus Ferrari, I think it was. And, uh, just all of a sudden had a panic attack. Um, like out of nowhere. Uh, and I, I thought I was dying. Uh, I mean, it, anyone who's, who's experienced something like that, it honestly feels like you are dying. Uh, it feels like you're having a heart attack. But, and I was convinced. So I went to the hospital, and and I was in the hospital for about three or four days. And eventually, they sort of came back and said, "Look, we think it's a panic attack." And I was like, "No way! That's 
just impossible. Like, um, because I I'd always been pretty headstrong and um, I think quite good mentally, and and I couldn't. And I was like, I was I felt fine at the time that it happened, but um, apparently, apparently these things manifest themselves under the surface subconsciously. Um, right. And so yeah, I just came out of the blue, and and that was like yeah, quite a, a start of a. In the next few months were were pretty horrible because I yeah I kept at first I couldn't believe that it was actually just a panic attack. So every time I would get these weird feelings and um, think that that um yeah it feels like you like suddenly you're gonna take off or something like you're gonna die. Uh, it's sort of a hard thing to explain um, until you're in that situation. I'd I'd always sort of looked at people with with issues like that and thought oh, come on man uh, just. Uh, <laughs> just like pull yourself together. Uh, and then suddenly it feels like you're losing your mind. Um, it feels like you're going crazy. Um, and, uh, then the doctors, they put me on, on antidepressants and on, and on sleeping tablets, uh, because they were like, well, one of the biggest factors is because I haven't been sleeping. So that could easily be one of the causes because you know, your yeah. body kind of goes haywire if it doesn't sleep. So then I was on sleeping tablets every night and I was on those for, I don't know, four months or so. Um, and that obviously it helped to sleep, but then at the same time, it kind of zonks you out for like half of the next day. Um, right. so that was pretty tough as well. Cause in that time, obviously I was still trying to ride and, and still trying to continue with, with life. And, you know, I did national champs in that time. Um, at the beginning of last year and yeah i mean having been on sleeping tablets it, it wasn't ideal because i was trying to race but like pretty zonked uh you know when i was actually practicing and uh so but i i didn't want to yeah i didn't want to sort of actually what i needed to do is is just to tell everyone look i need to have six months for myself and just completely withdraw from everything and just get my health back on track but i you know i was worried about about sponsors and things i just i just signed with with scott in germany and uh and i had a, a good sponsor locally that was that was supporting me in it and i was worried that if i if i said that that things might have might have been different uh, or they might have pulled out and um so yeah, i was kind of hard decision for me but it was very hard to actually try and focus on riding my bike when i was just so worried about uh my mental health and and my physical health and getting back to getting back to normal yeah um, so was was coronavirus kind of almost a, a i don't want to say lucky break but it did it almost kind of force you to take the time away from riding and racing and a lot of things to kind of reboot and and help you get back kind of strong and healthy physically and mentally like how did that all play out yeah, uh, I don't want to say Corona is a good thing. It's not for sure, but in my in my case, it definitely the whole Corona situation was definitely a a, a helpful factor. Um, the fact not not Corona itself, but obviously the fact that there was no racing going on, because yeah. it meant that all of a sudden the pressure was off. Um, I didn't have to I didn't have to be so stressed out about training or getting up to speed or you know. Um, doing any you know having any commitments i could just take my time and uh and focus on me and trying to get you know as uh, get back to myself 
And so as about as of about my, uh, May last year, I I was able to yeah stop stop all the medication. Um, and I definitely wasn't hundred percent yet, but I was good enough um, that I could uh, do that. And then then I started focusing a lot more um, other techniques like meditation and breathing exercises and um, and things like that to to try and just decrease stress and and you know keep me in a in a calmer place. Uh, and and also prioritized sleep a lot more, um, as I as I now didn't take it for granted anymore when I realized it can be taken away from you, um, and and then yeah I went back so I went back to Europe and uh, my girlfriend was there at the time and so I wanted to go and obviously see her and then do some riding at the same time and and if there was if there was the odd race then I would do it but I at that point didn't really know uh, if there would be racing or not. Um, and as it turns out, there wasn't actually much that happened in terms of racing. But uh, yeah, it was a really good time to just go and do riding, go to bike parks, uh, and just kind of ride for me with no pressure, no urgency to go and train, um, and and sort of there wasn't any expectation, which I think was really good, uh, just to really enjoy the sport again, um, because I think that's something that. You know, maybe I'd lost a bit um, in my last year before all these injuries and that happened uh, just because of all the negativity surrounding everything um, with the bad luck and, and, and flat tires and, and sponsor issues and that. So it was so good to just go and, and have fun again and, and realize that, yeah, I mean, I, I still love riding my bike more than ever. Um, and yeah, I just kind of take it back to the roots, I guess. Yeah, man. How, and how are you feeling now do you feel back to your your normal self or your new self yeah i would say i mean i would say i'm i'm not um i'm never going to be exactly the same as i was before uh because obviously all these experiences definitely change you and you learn from things and and i think it's given me a, a very different perspective on life um and i realize how fragile life is and and how quickly things can end and i think that's been in a way a positive thing because um before all of this happened i was just tunnel vision like the only thing that mattered was riding was racing and i was so just so committed and so focused on that which i think i mean it's a good thing to get me to that point but in some ways a bit unhealthy um because that was like the only thing that mattered and um and then when all this happened i realized how quickly things can end and change and it and really I had to really contemplate, you know, what if I can't race again? What if I, what if I can't do this? You know, am I going to be happy? What, what am I going to do? And, and it made me realize also that what's important to you and, and family and friends, uh, you know, the people that are surrounding you are by far the most important thing, um, in life. And that's what's going to be there or should be there, uh, for you, uh, when things get tough or, or when things are good. And, um, you know, I, I don't actually know what I would have done had I not had the people that were around me, um, I, you know, and my, I'm so grateful for my family and friends and, uh, and my sponsors for, for sticking with me and through this because it's, yeah, it was a, a really a rough road. Um, but now I would say, um, I, I mean, I'm definitely compared to a year ago to now there's, it's night and day. Uh, it's, I feel, I feel great in comparison. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, 100 100 but i'm pretty close uh, i mean i'm feeling really good on the bike now and enjoying life and and just in a much better much better headspace than i was uh this time last year 
That's yeah, that's really good to hear, man. And what out of all the kind of techniques and things that you've used to help you recover, what what of those things have stuck? Are there things that you've you've been doing through that recovery that you're going to keep in your life? Yeah. Uh, so I I'm doing meditation, um, which which is and and a, some breathing techniques, which I kind of combine, and I do those most days. Uh, I try and do it every day, but sometimes uh, it takes sort of 45 minutes or so. So sometimes you you run out of time, but uh, I try and do it every day, and that that helps a lot. Just uh, just keeping you grounded, calm. You you deal with stress better, um, and and I think it helped me also in riding because obviously not things don't always go perfectly when you're on the bike, and it's good to uh, to be able to cope with that and not let it get to you. Um, whereas I think before I'd I'd get flustered quite easily, um, and I think that's yeah that's helped me a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I I actually had a surgery in in uh, November uh, end of last year again because uh, I needed to get the pins taken out uh, of the 2018 injury, the mm-hmm. pins, and then also they did they repaired my labrum and did some cartilage repair um, because that was probably the biggest issue last year, which um, I'm which I'm also so glad that they didn't race because. I had constant pain in the right hip, um, and especially with with more load. So, if I did a, a hard training session or or did a lot of down runs, I would always have pain in the evening, um, and it made it quite unpleasant. So I'd ended up not riding as much because I knew that every time I rode, I'd be sore afterwards. So it made it quite hard to actually be strong enough uh, and and be fit enough to. To race so I'm, I'm grateful that there weren't many races because i i would have battled to to be in the condition i needed to be yeah were you nervous going back under the knife for an operation and you know having medication and all the things that go with that <laughs> um yeah i don't know uh i think i didn't want to have i didn't want to have a medic a lot of medication so i'm always very i realize now that the doctors are are very quick to push pills um yeah and and that it's, it's, I thought, you know, that doctors are there to help you and, and on your side, but now I've learned that some doctors are, and some doctors are just there to make money and they don't actually care, uh, you know, what, what you take because, you know, when I was on everything, I, I realized that they, there was so much they didn't explain to me about, you know, how potentially dangerous the stuff could be if, uh, if used incorrectly. And so going back into the surgery, I, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't that nervous for the surgery as such because I'd been through two pretty, pretty, uh, pretty extensive surgeries the year before, in the years prior, and I knew it wasn't going to be anywhere near as bad as that. So um, I thought, well, I can get through. If I got through those, then this shouldn't be too bad. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, it's always I'm I'm pretty sick and tired of hospitals and and doctors and and injections and drips and all of that so I bet, yeah. Uh, yeah um and also with the whole corona situation it was it's quite of a tricky time because i was actually meant to get the surgery done in in about jan or feb last year already but then it was at that point when corona was kind of kicking off and so and i'd had all these other mental issues and and things so i thought maybe i should just before i go under the knife again just wait a bit and then there was a gap in about in about uh, november where the cases were pretty low here uh, in South Africa and also overseas and travel was open. And I thought, okay, let me just 
uh, literally within a week, uh, I changed flights and just came back and did it. And I'm so glad I did because right after that, about a couple of weeks later, cases just started shooting up all over and suddenly travel was restricted again. And so, and now I didn't want to be anywhere near a hospital. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it sounds like you got it, got it done in a good window there. Yeah, I think I was pretty lucky with that. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we don't have to be going to anywhere too close to hospitals anytime soon. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And so it, it feels like certainly in the last year or so, then bikes have been a, a good thing, like a nice distraction and a, and a healthy thing for you. Yeah, it feels like you're in a good place with bikes right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been really enjoying, um, enjoying riding again, um, the last, the last year and, and having that period with not really any racing was, was so great because over the last few years, I'd, there were a lot of bike parks and places that I'd wanted to visit uh, and try out, but you never really had the time because you were just on the road all the time going from one race to the next. And, uh, it was really cool to just go on, uh, yeah, weekend trips. And I tried a few other uh, sort of dabbled in a bit of other, other things as well. I, I learned to backflip last year, which is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> which uh, maybe my family didn't really think was the best idea considering I'd just broken my, both of my hips, but I was like, I kind of, when I realized how quickly things can end and it was ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to, to land a flip to do it. So I was like, you know what, this, this is not going to last forever. So, uh, let's just, let's just give it a try now. <laughs> did you start off on an airbag or a foam pit or something or how did you, how did you progress? Yeah, I, uh, I started, so one of the local, uh, local spots we have here, they had an airbag one day. And so that was the first time um that i had sort of even considered it um and then even though it was an airbag i was so scared just to just it was so foreign to to go up a lip and pull back and yeah. um yeah actually within a, i don't know two or three tries um i got it onto the airbag and that was and then i thought that was it i was like okay cool uh done that now uh, even though it's not the dirt i was like i was thinking i didn't expect that i'd ever take it further and then uh, about halfway through the year, we were in um, Surf House in, in Austria, and they had an, an airbag, which is sort of like a landing. Um, okay. So you could roll out of it. Uh, and I had my – I didn't have my jump bike. I just had my, my, my Genius uh, 150 more Enduro bike. And um, I'd never – obviously, I hadn't flipped an Enduro bike before and 29er, and, uh, and I had clips on as well. <laughs> but i was uh, i just just uh, the guy one of the other guys just said just go down and pull as hard as you can <laughs> so that's what i did i just pulled as hard as i can and yeah it worked out um and, and after that I, I also thought that was it uh, i never expected that i would go to dirt and then about a month later i went to a dirt, dirt jump spot uh, quite close to munich and they had a um sort of like a i don't know metal ramp takeoff with a sort of a mulch landing so it was dirt but it was a bit softer than the normal and uh all these kids were on their dirt jump bikes and loads of them were doing flips and they kind of i was like watching them and i just thought i don't know i just got the feeling i was like i don't know i think today's the day <laughs> and uh Fair play. and yeah it actually worked worked first try um and did it a couple times and then and then that was it i don't know how often i'll do it i'll do it but uh it was good to it was good to tick it off anyway that's incredible, um, yeah. Considering what you've been through, to be able to get your head around that and to make it happen is 
super cool <laughs> it's it's weird like i i kind of felt like this i don't know like this sort of sense of i didn't care because i'd already been through so much i was like well um probably it will be fine <laughs> law of averages <laughs> <laughs> at least trying to see it from that side um but uh yeah i don't know maybe it's a bit of stupidity i don't know but uh uh i guess all of us have a little bit of that installed in us and it put a smile on your face right yeah like it uh it was it felt pretty much the same as as when i'd i don't know won national champs or something <laughs> pretty pretty insane feeling uh and now i get why all these guys like uh, all the slope style guys uh love to do what they do because it, it's such a rush when you i mean uh, for most of them the backflip is one of the most basic tricks but uh you know when you land something new it's always it's always a great feeling for sure yeah man amazing fair play so what's what's next for you what are you kind of hoping to achieve in 2021 assuming that there is some uh, some racing going on so yeah after after everything that happened uh i after the second injury i kind of made a decision that i'm gonna take a little bit of a step uh, a back step from from so much travel and 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 so much racing um because mm-hmm. i just i didn't want to throw myself back into it again full on and and uh you know mentally not be able to or not be having fun or you know find it too much pressure so um actually going into 2020 the idea was that i was uh, so i'd signed with scott's in germany and i was going to be doing the you know the full german series um and then a couple of other events so doing like crankworks in innsbruck and um and then i thought i would potentially do a world cup or two just depending on how i feel um so if i was feeling good and having fun and, and riding well then i would pick like a couple that i really wanted to go to like i'd probably choose baldasol and um i don't know maybe fort william or something but um that i wanted to go to and then and do that but i didn't want to go and commit to a full world cup season um at that at that point so for this year it's kind of the same strategy i guess because last year didn't really happen so yeah the idea i'll be doing the the, the access access cups um around europe and uh crankworks and uh, maybe like a, a red bull pump track event or you know i'm quite into that as well and i would like to try out uh, uh, an ews at some point um and then yeah maybe a world cup or two just you know kind of playing it by ear um but i yeah i i would i got a couple of goals that i would like to that i would like to still tick off and uh i'd really like to get back to the level that i was at before all this happened and um i do still believe that i can um even though it's it's been a hell of a rocky road up until this point but i think more just for me to my own because uh, my own mental um state just to prove to myself that i can overcome all of this and and get back to that point because uh a lot of i think a lot of people first of all had no idea what exactly went on but also you know, a lot of my family and friends are like, why do you want to keep doing this? Um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's uh, it's just like something inside and the fire is still burning. And uh, But I realized at the same time that racing is not everything. Uh, whereas at one point that was, you know, if the racing didn't work out, I would feel so lost. Whereas now, I because of all of this, I'm, I think, you know, even if, I, if someone told me today, you can't race ever again, like, you know, 
obviously wouldn't be happy about it, but I'd be okay. Like, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, I know there's other things that can also make me happy and there's other things in life that I also want to achieve. And, um, but for the time being, uh, this is still a, a big goal. And, uh, yeah, I'd like to, to see, to see where, where I end up. I don't know, but, uh, I'd like to see how, uh, how things progress over the next year or two, but definitely not, uh, not done with the racing just yet. Nice one. Yeah. Sounds like you're, you're in a good place. We're, um, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we've got our final four questions that we've asked most people. So we'll hit those up if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. So first of those, if our listeners had 150 pounds, which I think is about 3000 South African Rand to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they spend it on? Whew. Uh, oh, tough question. Um, hmm. maybe, are you meaning anything around the bike or you mean actually things for the bike? Uh, anything. Well, I would say maybe, uh, maybe some skills coaching a couple of a couple of sessions skills coaching or uh some new tires um yeah maybe yeah new tires or new brakes because uh for okay. me have, having good brakes and and good good rubbers probably the most important yeah what are your go-to tires and brakes at the moment uh so i'm running the kenda hellcats um okay and uh also yeah i haven't tried this i've just gone into kenda this year so but i've been super happy so far um and brakes i'm running magura i'm actually running the mt5s to to be honest okay um and most people are quite surprised uh with the mt5 i'm not right i'm not sponsored by magura so i've got no uh, incentive to push them but i just i think they're really good brakes and super reasonable i think they're 150 euros or something for a set um and wow, okay. they've got the same power um, as the MT7s, basically, uh, if you just change the pads when you get them, change the pads and, and I mean, my brakes, I bleed them like once a year and they're pretty much bomb proof. So, um, good investment. If you're looking for a cheap set of brakes that are going to be good enough to ride or to do a world cup down on. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's, yeah, I've not heard that before. What, so what pads are you putting in them? Uh, so I just switched them out when the MT5 comes stock, they come with, uh, uh, like just two pads that are on either side, but the MT7s have four separate pads. Okay. Um, and for some reason, the two pads just don't have anywhere near the power of the, of the four separate pads. So when I got them, I, I wanted to see if they were the same and I just switched out the pads and then, yeah, power wise, I, I don't feel a difference, um, between the, the MT5 yeah. and the MT7s interesting well, that's a good top tip for people i like it <laughs> all right second question if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16 given everything that you've uh, you've been through what advice would you give him huh, i'd say uh don't rush things um listen to your gut um don't don't go riding uh when you're tired um and uh yeah don't don't listen to everyone uh, because everyone's got a, a different piece of advice and at the end of the day you need to work out what works what what works for you as a rider and there's no one size fits all whether it's on bike setup or training or whatever it is uh, I think in the beginning I, uh, I kind of listen to everyone but that just confuses you and you end up going in the wrong direction so I think pick, pick someone who knows what they're talking about and, and try and stick to to one plan as opposed to uh yeah 
looking for advice everywhere. Yeah, good advice. Third question, if you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Mm, you meaning from a rider or from an actual coach? We could have one from each if you want. Um, okay. Um, hmm. I don't know, maybe uh, from a rider point, maybe, maybe someone like Steve, uh, Steve Pete. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know Steve um, personally, but uh, yeah, um, I know that he's got to have a lot of knowledge um, from over the years. Um, and and from a coach, um, maybe someone like Alan Alan Milway. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, he's worked with a lot of top athletes and and had he's got a lot of knowledge from over the years working for, with you know the Athletons, etc. So. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to to hear the different the different takes on things. Definitely, yeah, he's a smart man, Mister Millway. There's no doubt about that. All right, final final question: What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? <laughs> um, I think I have my morning cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> are you a, are you seriously into your coffee? Yeah, I, I'm a. I try not to drink too much because otherwise I'm a bit sensitive to caffeine, so it gets a bit bit hectic. But I I really love love uh, good coffee. So anywhere trying new places, uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a must for me. Yeah, start the day right. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, man. Well, it's been uh, it's been really interesting chatting and finding out about your journey so far. And I'm I'm really glad to hear that you're feeling like you're in a really good place and that you're enjoying riding and you've got good plans for 2021 and beyond and yeah i look forward to to seeing how it goes and i hope it i hope it pans out really well for you man yeah thanks very much uh it's been a it's been a great pleasure being on here and uh i'm uh, i'm looking forward to yeah to be- bigger and better things uh i'm sure we all are after this last crazy year with corona um definitely. But, uh, yeah looking forward to to definitely taking things in a positive direction and uh yeah, let's uh, to see where things go. Um, just going to try and enjoy it as long as I can, and uh, yeah, appreciate every second that you that you get to do this. Good stuff. What uh, what's the best place for people to look if they want to follow and keep up to date with what you're up to? Is it Instagram? Uh, yeah, I would say Instagram is probably the best. Uh, it's just at Stefan Garlicky, um, no underscores or anything. Um, and then okay. yeah, I'm also on TikTok, but uh, Instagram is probably the main place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll put links in the show notes so people can find that. Well, thanks. Thanks for your time, Stefan. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and yeah, wish you all the best for a a happy and successful 2021. Cool. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, I look forward to to chatting again. Nice one. Cheers, Stefan. Cheers. All right. That's it for this episode with Stefan. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. Massive thanks to Canyon for supporting this episode of the show. They've got a whole new range of e-bikes in stock and waiting for you. So whether it's the new 180mm torque on to go out and get wild with, or the Spectral on to massively increase the ground that you can cover on your trail rides, Canyon have got you covered. So head over to canyon.com now to check them out. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, you can grab yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. With all the proceeds going to help improve the podcast. 
You know what to do. Keep on spreading the word about the show. Tell your riding mates and share the episodes on your social media. It makes a massive difference and it all helps me keep this thing going, bringing you new episodes every week. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, a review over on iTunes is really helpful too. All right, there's going to be another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>